Last night I talked about right view. Today you will be sort of a continuation of right view. But as a preliminary to that, I want to talk about Samatha and Vipassana. Or in English, tranquility and insight. Or serenity and distinct seeing. The first day when you came in the afternoon we started the retreat and until the next morning before the guided Satipatthana meditation you were all doing Samatha. And even when you were introduced to the preliminaries of Satipatthana meditation that is still Samatha. Now the word Samatha means to still, to settle, to tranquilize. Or rather it is the noun of the verb It is stillness, tranquility, serenity. Although nowadays there are different views and interpretations of what Samatha and Vipassana entails, even the assertion that Samatha and Vipassana are two sides of the same coin, These two subjects are very well defined by the Buddha himself. I don't know why there's so much controversy because it is so clearly written in the suttas. Not only in one sutta, not only in Tatiya Samadhi Sutta, but in a few others as well. But the most Obvious of them all is in Tatiya Samadhi Sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, numerical sayings of the Buddha. The Buddha talked about four types of individuals. He said that there is one type of individual who has attained internal serenity of mind. Ajatang Cheto Samatha. Ajatang means internal, Cheto is of the mind, and Samatha is stillness. But who has not attained Adipanya Dhamma Vipassana, which means distinct seeing of the Dhamma through higher wisdom. The word Samatha is there and the word Vipassana is there although it's part of two separate compounds. In short, I will just refer to Samatha and Vipassana. There's one individual who has Samatha without Vipassana and there's a second individual who has Vipassana without Samatha. The third type of individual has neither Samatha nor Vipassana and the fourth type has both Samatha and Vipassana. To each of them the Buddha gave his advice. He says one who has Samatha without Vipassana should approach one who has Vipassana to learn how to do Vipassana. One who has Vipassana without Samatha should approach one who has Samatha to learn how to do Samatha. One who has neither Samatha nor Vipassana should approach someone who has both Samatha and Vipassana. And one who has both Samatha and Vipassana should not be complacent with lower attainments but should strive on 
to the ultimate goal of liberation. I will go on to the second individual first because the first individual who's got samatha without vipassana is supposed to ask the vipassana yogi how to practice vipassana. I'm not going to talk about vipassana first, I'm going to talk about samatha first. I will go to the second individual who has vipassana without samatha. This person is advised by the Buddha to approach someone who has samatha to ask him how to practice samatha. He's supposed to ask four questions. The first question is, literally, how to make the mind stand properly. The second question is, how to make the mind sit properly. The third question is, how to unify the mind. And the last question is, how to compose the mind. The first question, how to make the mind stand properly, is a literal translation of the Pali word, Santapetabham, how to cause the mind to stand properly. The second, how to cause the mind to sit properly, is Sanisadetabham. This is using it in a figurative way. The way I understand it, is the mind is running all over the place. The normal mind of the man in the street, person who is not cultivating, the mind is running all over the place. If you want to steal the mind, because this is samatha, this is all about stealing the mind. If you want to steal the mind, you have to make it stop running. Stand instead of run. Because standing is a more stable posture than running or moving around. After you make the mind stand, then the next thing you need to do is to steal it even more, which is to make it sit. That's why first one is to make the mind stand properly. Second is to make it sit properly. The third is to unify the mind so that it is not scattered. And finally, is how to compose the mind. This is the whole process of samatha. The end result of samatha is step four, which is composure. How to compose the mind. This is the verb. The noun of to compose is composure, and in Pali it is samadhi. Usually people translate samadhi as concentration. But the word concentration could be misleading, because people have a different idea of what concentration is. To give you a practical example, when you arrive on the first day, you were asked to do Arahang, Samasambudo, you were asked to chant Sukino, Wakemi no Hundu. Initially, when you start to do that, the mind is running off, running off to all the baggage that you left behind, but still the link is there, so the mind runs off. You very patiently bring it back to your chanting. Then the mind becomes more and more still. There will be less and less thoughts. The distractions, the wandering mind will reduce. That is making the mind stand properly and make it sit properly. These two vary only in the degree of stillness. One is grosser, the other one is more refined. Then when the mind becomes one, it means that there are no more thoughts. There's only the oneness of the mind. You are just still chanting. So you are sort of at one with your chant. Finally, when the mind has become one, there are no more distractions, then it becomes composed in the sense that you can properly bring and place the mind where you want to. That is the meaning of samadhi. Samadhi is made up of three components, sang, ah, and di. Sang means properly, A means bring, and D means place, placement, or placing. Properly bring and place the mind. 
you can see that the whole process of samatha is about the mind. In Pali, it's called Gatang Chittang Santapetabhang. How to make the mind stand properly. The second one is Gatang Chittang Sanisidatabhang. How to make the mind sit properly. The third one is Gatang Chittang Ekodikatabhang. How to make the mind unified. And the last one is Katang Chittang Samadhatabang, how to compose the mind. You see that the word Chitta Chitta is in all the four questions. The work of Samatha is to still the mind, is concerned with the mind, how to still the mind. There are four steps involved in the practice of Samatha. For the first individual, he has already attained Samatha. And so he's supposed to approach someone who has attained Vipassana to ask him three questions. How to practice Vipassana? The first question is, how are Sankharas to be viewed? The second question is, how are Sankharas to be investigated? And the third one is, how are Sankharas to be distinctly seen? These three questions. You can see here that in the work of Vipassana, you are working on Sankharas, because Sankhara appears in every question. Whereas in the practice of Samatha, you are working with the mind, because the word Chitta appears in every question. There are two separate things. They are not two sides of the same coin. They are two separate practices. When you do Samatha, there is no wisdom involved. You are not interested in investigation. You just want to steal the mind. That's why when I talked about other Anchor the other day, I said other Anchor can be used basically as a Samatha tool. That's why I say other Anchor, rule of thumb, to steal the monkey mind. The steal there is a Samatha. The Anchor is a principle for Samatha. I also explained that either you do focused awareness or you do open awareness, you still can use the same principle of other anchor. You can still attain a similar result of composure. Even for the Samatha Yogi, attitude is very important. He has got to learn to accept whatever happens and not try to reject them or follow them. But instead of acknowledging them, Samatha Yogi will just ignore them. You don't need to acknowledge, you just ignore. You accept all things. Second is don't reject, don't follow. The next A is abandon them. Ignore them, abandon them. And finally, what you do, you anchor your mind to your single object. Whether it's your chanting of Arahang or chanting of Sukhino, or watching your breath, or watching your rising and falling. That is focused awareness. You can use the same principle of Vata Anchor for open awareness. It will also lead to composure. If you use the same principle, it will be accept all things, don't reject, don't follow. Third, you can abandon. And then finally, you anchor yourself instead of to one object then you anchor yourself to the five senses now when you do that sort of open awareness maybe you just keep track of the, what is happening in the senses and you ignore your thoughts your comments your judgments whatever you just ignore them you just keep yourself to the five senses that also will bring about composure that also will cut down all the thoughts you can attain a thought free state where there is just awareness of what's happening at the senses. But there's no wisdom. This is pure samatha. Pure samatha using open awareness. You can also have pure samatha using focused awareness, which is very obvious. You just focus on one object and you ignore everything else. However, if you're going to practice open awareness as a precursor for Vipassana meditation. I introduce one extra element in the don't, 
I say don't ignore. Instead of abandon, I say acknowledge. Acknowledge them and then you come back to the senses. Now even when you acknowledge them, but you don't incline your mind to see the three characteristics or to see cause and conditioning, that will still be samatha. No wisdom yet. But it is a preliminary for vipassana. It will assist vipassana in the next step. Because you have really trained the mind to acknowledge. Not to ignore, but to acknowledge things. Some yogis were asking, sometimes they have this thought that is about to start. Just the starting of the thought. The thought has not fully developed into a story yet. But the yogi has got enough composure to be able to catch the thought and nip it at the butt. The question is, shall I nip it at the butt? Or shall I allow it to continue? And then let go of it later. Those of you who have done like Mahasi method before, you have been told by your teacher to just note, note planning, planning, thinking, and so forth, and then come back to your rising and falling. When you have done that, you will know that you don't know what you are planning. You don't know what you are thinking. The moment it arises, you just cut it off and you come back to your rising and falling. That won't give you wisdom because you don't know what you are thinking about. If you don't know what you're thinking about, how are you going to connect that to cause and conditioning? Cannot. That's why when you practice open awareness leading to the practice of vipassana, not pure samatha, you want to lay the foundation for you to move smoothly, to transit smoothly to investigation. To allow the thought to occur for a while maybe not the full blown story like one or two minutes but just one second one second is a long time in terms of the mind within a second if you are really walking for example if you are composed enough within a second you can see many thoughts happening one after another each one connected to the other you don't nip it at the butt if you nip it at the bud too soon, you wouldn't know what the contents are. You wouldn't be able to see the cause and condition. You allow it just to happen for a while, but not too long. If it's too long, then you get sucked into it and you're already making a story. That is the difference. In Samatha, you can use the same principle of other anchor for focus awareness and for open awareness if you practice open awareness for pure samatha then you just ignore and you abandon and you come back to the five senses if you want to use open awareness to lay the foundation for vipassana you don't ignore you acknowledge and you come back but don't investigate yet that's what I've been telling you to do especially for new yogis these few days and I've been telling you about right view. I've touched on Anicca Dukkha Anatta and conditionality yesterday. Impermanence, suffering, not self, and cause and condition yesterday. Today I'm going to talk more about this. Because it is related to the three questions on how to practice Vipassana. The first question to repeat is, how are Sankharas to be viewed? Now the word to be viewed in Pali is databhang. Katang sankara databha. Now this word databha has the same root as the word ditti. Sama ditti, right view. They come from the same root. How are sankaras to be viewed? That's the first question. Second question, how are sankharas to be investigated? Third question, how are sankharas to be distinctly seen? The third question in Pali is katang sankara vipasitabha. That's where the word vipassana comes from. The word vipasitabha is the verb of vipassana, which is a noun. Vipassana, vi means distinctly, and pasana means seeing. 
seeing distinctly. Let me explain what are Sankharas first and then I will talk about how to view them. Now in this particular sutta, the Buddha just gave these questions. But he did not define what is Sankhara. He did not give the answer how to view Sankhara, how to investigate Sankhara, how to distinctly see Sankhara. All these were not explained. Neither were the questions about Samatha. Maybe the Buddha purposely didn't want to answer these questions because he didn't want you to be too theoretical. You need to go and see somebody who really has the experience to be able to answer this question in an experiential way rather than in just a theoretical way. Because if you don't have experience, you wouldn't know what is meant by make the mind stand properly, make the mind sit properly. It doesn't mean anything to you. Sankharas is not found in that particular sutta. And in one of my Sutta Sari workshops on Samatha and Vipassana, we went through many references from the suttas to figure out what Sankhara means. You cannot find it in one sutta, you have to look through many, many suttas to get the gist of what it means. In the context of this question, Sankhara here refers to what I call constructions. Sankharas are sometimes translated as formations or sometimes translated as conditioned phenomena and Ajahn Tanisero translates it as fabrications. Unlike the word constructions which I borrowed from Peter Harvey who is a Bali scholar, now professor in, in UK, an Englishman, because the word construction can be used in the passive voice and also can be used in the active present tense. You construct and it is constructed. You can say constructed, constructed phenomena. You can say constructing because Sankara can be passive and can be active. If it is passive, then it is constructed. If it is active, then it is constructed or construction. Whatever is constructed or whatever arises due to causes and conditions, that is called Sankara. Although the Abhidhamikas say that there is ultimate reality, and Sankharas belong to this group of ultimate realities and they are Citta, Citta-sika and Rupa which is Rupa is form and then Citta is the mind and Citta-sika is mental factor only these three all other things like your thoughts and your comments your judgments your perceptions of things these are all conceptual. These are not ultimate reality. These are not considered as Sankhara. That is what the Abhidhamika say. But then in the suttas, it is not defined that way. In the suttas, it simply said that Sankharas are things that are products of causes and conditions. And as you all know, when you meditate and you see all the thoughts arising in the course of your daily life, particularly when you get up from your sitting and you're walking and you're doing your chores, you're going to the dining hall, you're seeing people doing things, there's a time when you can see all your thoughts and comments and judgments arising. And if you have enough composure and maturity of wisdom, you can also see that they are all products of past conditioning and present circumstances. How can these not be included in Sakharas? They are also products of causes and conditions. They are also impermanent. They arise and pass away due to cause and condition. And to ostracize all these thoughts, judgments, comments, from the practice of vipassana 
makes the practice something very unrealistic. Because if you go to a meditation center that has this Abhidhamika view that you only view your Chitta, Chittasika and Rupa, don't go and worry about the contents of your thoughts. Then when you come back to the world, how are you going to apply? Because back in the world, you are in the world of concepts. You are dealing with thoughts all the time. That's why there's this syndrome among yogis who practice this Abhidhamika, Vipassana practice. They can have fantastic insights in an intensive retreat. But then when they come back to the world, they don't know how to apply. Because when you are in that sort of intensive retreat, you do observe noble silence, you are with the ultimate reality. In the scene, there's only the scene. In the herd, there's only the herd. There's no interpretation of what you see, hear, smell, taste, and what color is this color, sound is this sound. When you go back to the world, you do that, what's going to happen to you? Well, no doubt that when practice becomes very profound, you're very deep in your practice, you will get there. Because when you get to this very thought-free state of samadhi, of composure, and you're doing vipassana, there are no more thoughts, there are no more concepts. You're going straight into the ultimate reality of the five aggregates. Yes, that's true. But that's a very deep practice. And if you're just used to that sort of practice and you're not trained on how to watch the conceptual sankharas, then that's a big problem because when you come back to the world, you will not be able to adjust. That's why in my retreats, I always emphasize that they are geared for daily life practice. If you're really a very serious yogi, you're going to become Arahant soon, ah, yes, then you do this. Go into ultimate reality and watch the fire aggregates. See, they never rise and pass away. <laughs> but if you're going back to the world, you know, this is not for you. Not yet. Sankharas are whatever phenomena that is a construction, that is constructed out of causes and conditions, a product of causes and conditions. The object of Vipassana are Sankharas. That also includes the mind. But when you are doing Samatha, you are also watching the mind. But you are watching the mind in order to steal it. You are not watching the mind in order to understand it. There is a difference. You are always watching the mind to make sure that it stands properly, it sits properly, it becomes unified it becomes wieldy and malleable. you can place it wherever you want to. But Sankara is different. You need to have the right view. This is that tabba. How should Sankara be seen, be viewed? That brings us to the right view. We talked about various types of right view yesterday and basically it's all about cause and condition. It's all about cause and effect. You look at Sankaras in terms of Anicca Dukkha in terms of cause and condition. You can deduce this from other suttas and what you chant every night. Sabbe Sankara Anitati. All constructions are impermanent. When you're doing Vipassana, that's the first step. You have the right view. The right view of looking at Sankaras. Now, scientists are also studying Sankaras. Scientists also know that everything is connected to everything else. That they are all cause and condition, all cause and effect. They know that. They can measure that with their instruments. They can calculate it with their formulas. But they don't have the wisdom because they don't personally verify it through their own personal experience. They are dealing with objects, not with the subject. That's why I keep telling you Objects are not important. It's more important to see the subject. Because you cannot see actually the causes and conditions for the objects. You can see the cause and condition for the subject. For example, this morning when we were doing panoramic awareness, as we were standing there, there was this bird or animal making a loud sound. 
First time I've heard it also. Never heard this sort of sound before. And he was doing it very regularly for quite some time. I bet all of you were thinking about it. <laughs> Every one of you would be wondering what it was and why he's doing it. <laughs> why he's doing it. And some of you might be emotionally affected. Someone said that she felt very sorry for that animal because it seems to be in distress. You can see the impermanence of the sound because the sound comes and goes, comes and goes. You can say it's impermanent. But can you see its cause and condition? Do you know why the sound came up? You can only conjecture. Sounds as though the poor animal is in distress. That's only a conjecture. You don't really know. What you can know is the subject. Because of that sound, you are thinking, what could that be? Because of that sound, you are conjecturing. The animal seems to be in trouble. All these you can see and verify for yourself. You can know the exact causes and conditions for the subject, but not the object. That's why it is very important to watch the subject more than the objects. You can also see any chaduka nata in the objects, of course, but it is not as impactful as seeing that in the subject. I don't know whether I should tell this to you. One yogi said quite an interesting experience. After I tell you, then you all become scared. <laughs> but maybe it's good also. Then you have to make sure that your arahang and sukino are well done. <laughs> there was this yogi. She was sitting alone in MPH. There was almost lunchtime. Everybody had gone down, maybe wash up or prepare for lunch. And then she was sitting, eyes open, doing open awareness, and in front of her, there's an empty cushion. And suddenly, the cushion flipped. There's no one there. <laughs> the two cushions, one, the square one, and then the rectangular one to raise your buttocks. It just flipped over. She saw. <laughs> But she was composed. No fear. Then after that, she felt a gust of breeze on her body. And after that, she smelled very fragrant. And then she told me, she saw Anicca Dukkha Anatta in the cushion being flipped. I said, how do you see Anicca Dukkha Anatta in the cushion? <laughs> Nobody there, I flip myself. <laughs> Can you see the cause and condition? Now you know why the cushion flipped. <laughs> but then you can see what's happening in your mind. The mind will start to conjecture. Why is it flipping like that? Who could that be? And then she began to connect with her past experiences. And she arrived at a, a sort of assumption or a conclusion that this happened based on the past experience. You can see that the subject is the one that you can locate or identify the cause. The cause is because the cushion flipped. And then all these thoughts and all these conjecture and all these conclusions that you arrived at were done because of past experiences. But you don't know anything about the cause and condition for that cushion to flip. I'm saying, watch the subject more. That's the most important thing. Talking about cause and conditioning, now let's talk about Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. Anicca means you see things arise and pass away. And it's very obvious, even as I said yesterday, when in the old days, when you had this cathode ray tube in your TV, you can see all these pixels arising and passing away in your cathode ray tube, in your screen. You just think Anicca, but there's no wisdom involved. Every day so you hear all these toads and insects, the sounds also come and go, come and go, that's Anicca. But it's not anywhere as impactful as seeing your mind arising and passing away due to cause and condition. When you really see the mind arising and passing away due to cause and condition, then you understand that there's no one there. Because you didn't think the thought, it arose because of cause and condition. And the more you see of this, the more frightening it becomes. 
especially when you become very close, not once in a while you see constant conditioning. When you see one after another, every thought that you have, every comment that you have, everything that you do is a product of constant condition, that's when you realize what is suffering. You can't stop. There's nowhere you can do otherwise. You are actually the victim of causes and conditions. When you realize that, that is insight. And insight is supposed to be wholesome. But insight can very quickly turn into unwholesome. When you look at it, then you begin to despair, and then you cry, that is really unwholesome. Once there's unpleasant feeling in it, then there is Dosa. The mind is so fast. One moment you are wise, another moment you are back to moha already. <laughs> you can't control it. You know you can't control it. Then why are you crying? Because you want to control it and you cannot control it. That's why you are crying. You are back into moha. The control freak again. <laughs> As I was saying, moha is so difficult to eradicate. It is so insidious and so well grounded in everyone. This suffering that we are talking about is not the physical suffering that you get. You sit for some time and then ache here, ache there, mosquito bite you, bed bugs bite you. Not that sort of suffering. That one is very gross suffering. That is called dukkha dukkha, painful suffering. There is another type of suffering that is called viparinama dukkha, which is the suffering of transformation. This actually refers to sukha. Sukha is pleasantness, happiness. When you enjoy something, either food or a scenery or music or whatever, objects that you have or whatever possessions you have, you enjoy it. And then you treasure it, you cherish it. At that time, you think is happiness. You are happy with it. But when that thing deteriorates, or you lose it, or it becomes damaged, and then that's when dukkha comes in, particularly if you have attachment. And worse still for animate objects, people, people whom you love, you are attached to, and once they separate from you, either because of relationship problems or because of the nature of life, then that's when suffering comes in. When there is attachment for pleasurable objects, that is actually called Viparinama Dukkha. Initially it's happiness, but because there's attachment, once that happiness, that pleasure is gone, then it will be replaced by Dukkha. I'll give you a good example. For example, an ordinary person may enjoy good food, very tasty, enjoy with attachment. Now, if you serve the same food to an arahan, the arahan also will enjoy the nice food, but without attachment. There's a difference. The Buddha is often quoted as saying that he finds the forest around where he used to go, very delightful. In fact, there was a time when he was about to pass away and he made this hint to Asma Ananda, saying this forest is so delightful, that forest is so delightful and so forth, hinting to him that he was about to pass away when a person who is skilled in the four idipadas, the four roads to success, then that person can prolong his life for an aeon. He was saying that, hoping that perhaps Ananda would request him to prolong his life. Because at that time, he already announced that Mara had come to request him, or rather blackmail him to Parinibbana because he had promised to do so. Once the four assemblies were complete and were knowledgeable enough. But Asma Ananda didn't get the hint. The Buddha was so fine, the forest delightful. But 
Although the Buddha who is an Arahant can find the forest delightful, he can enjoy the nature, he is not attached to it. Enjoying with attachment and enjoyment without attachment are two different things. Enjoyment with attachment is Viparinama, Dukkha. If you enjoy without attachment, it is not Dukkha. Dukkha Dukkha is the first one, painful suffering. The second time is Viparinama Dukkha, the suffering of transformation. And the last one is Sankara Dukkha, the Dukkha of constructions. Whatever is the product of causes and conditions, it will arise and pass away incessantly. Particularly the mind. The mind arises and passes away faster than the body. Very much more faster than the physical matter. That's why in one sutta, the Buddha said that it is understandable if a man or a person were to think that his body is permanent. Because every morning you look at the mirror, you do the same. Unless you take a photograph and look at it ten years later, then you will know. But if you look at the mirror every day, you are the same. <laughs> you appear to be the same, you have not changed. But the Buddha says, to think that the mind is permanent is foolish. Because the mind changes so quickly from moment to moment. If you watch your mind, you will know it changes so quickly from moment to moment. The changing of the mind is so quick and is so incessant that the suffering itself, it arises and passes away and nobody can stop it. Even pleasant feelings, you like pleasant feelings, you want them to be there for a long time, also cannot. They will be there when the causes and conditions are present and they will cease when the causes and conditions are no longer there. This is the ultimate suffering of Sankara. This ultimate suffering of Sankara can only be realized by a yogi when you have enough composure and continuity of practice. And then the impact will be very strong with continuity of practice when you see all your thoughts, all your mental activities are arising and passing away without stop due to causes and conditions beyond your control. Then you will be hit by this realization of suffering. There can also be a realization of another. It can also be very dramatic. When you see that everything is due to cause and condition, there's no one there to control, then there's no self there, there's no one there. Then some people also panic because they're so used to having a sense of self. When there's no more sense of self, they panic because where am I? Who am I? What happened to me? I'm no longer around. And they still want to grasp back at the self. It's really a conflict because you have been living with the self, with the illusion of the self for so long. And now when you really come face to face with reality, you cannot accept it. These are the profound insights into impermanence, suffering and not-self. While it is wrong to say that Samatha and Vipassana are two sides of the same coin, I think it is correct to say that Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta are three sides of the same coin. Because you look at it from different perspectives. They are all characteristics of Sankaras. All products of causes and conditions exhibit these three signs. They are impermanent, they arise and they must pass away, and they are suffering, and they are not self. They are all causes and conditions. Products of causes and conditions. It depends on which angle you see them. There's one sutta where the Buddha talks about constructed phenomena. He says that constructed phenomena has these three characteristics. They arise, they persist, and then they pass away. When you watch these sankharas, these products of causes and conditions, when they arise, they persist, and pass away. When you watch them, then you can interpret them in three ways. You can look at them as anicca, impermanent, or you can look at them as suffering, or you can look at them as not-self. Depends on each individual. For some people, one of the three characteristics is more prominent than the other. 
But in the Sangyutta Nikaya, in a set of three suttas, it seems that even if one were to see anicca or impermanence, then one has to go to see dukkha or suffering. And then after that, subsequently, one must see anatta before one can gain liberation. But if one starts with dukkha instead of anicca, one can see dukkha, one still has to go to anatta in order to be liberated. But if one starts with anatta, one sees anatta, one can get liberated straight away. Don't have to go to anicca, dukkha. Well, in any case, you still need to go to anatta in the end. You can start with anicca, you can start with dukkha, but you must end with anatta. That's how Tankharas are to be viewed. We have this right view. Everything is due to cause and conditioning. You have to see. You have to look at Tankharas in terms of Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta as products of causes and conditions. Then the next step. This is only a theory. This is a theoretical foundation. You need to have the right view. Then the next step is how to investigate. Now the Pali word is Samasitabha It's not Samasati It's Samasitabha It sounds like Samasati but it's not What it literally means is How can it be properly kneaded Flour, you put some water in it And then knead it into a dough To make it a cake How do you knead Sankara? You knead in the sense that When you put water into the flour then you have to mix it together properly so that it can cohere into a malleable mixture for you to mold it. Same thing. That means to say, how are you going to investigate Sankaras? You need the Sankaras until Vipassana insight can arise. These three questions, the first one and the second one, are the causes. And the last one, is a result. You don't have to worry about the last one. You just have to worry about the first two. If you do the first two, then the third one will rise when the time is right. Now you've got the intellectual understanding, you've got a theory behind you. How are you going to investigate? That's why you need the meditation teacher, someone who has the experience to tell you how to do it. What we teach you here is to compose your mind first. You do Samatha, at the beginning we do Buddhanusati and Tsukino, and then after that we do Samatha, open awareness, and when your mind is calm and composed, then you incline the mind to verify the three characteristics and cause and conditioning. Incline your mind doesn't mean that you intellectually try to rationalize. Incline your mind means you just program your mind to do it. It's just like a computer. In a computer, you have scheduled task. You schedule the computer to do this. You schedule the mind to verify cause and condition and the three characteristics when it is ready. Once you incline the mind to do that, then you come back to your open awareness. Be aware of the six senses. Just anchor yourself to the five senses. Initially, it's the five senses, but then later, it's the six senses. Because when you do panoramic awareness, for instance, you are putting your mind in space. You're actually watching the mind. What is the mind aware of happening right now? That is like a spider sitting in the center of his web. And then whatever happens at the periphery, the spider will be able to sense. The same thing, you maintain that unfocused gaze or unfocused attention, you are actually watching the mind. But you are not allowing the mind to get lost in thoughts. When you say, what is the mind aware of happening right now, the implication is that if you are not lost in thoughts, what can the mind be aware of happening right now? If you are not familiar with this instruction, like what happened when I was teaching earlier in one Buddhist retreat in Babs many years ago, one of the early Buddhist retreats. I give this very simple instruction without qualification. I just say, just ask your mind, what's the mind doing? What's the mind aware of? 
One yogi came in to report. She said that she was having a lot of visions and making a lot of stories inside, creating her own video. And then I said, well, how long did that happen? She said, for well, the whole time I was sitting, one hour. I said, why are you pursuing that? You asked me to watch the mind, what is he doing? So I'm watching. <laughs> when I say, be aware of what's the mind doing, I'm saying, if you are not caught up in thoughts, imagination and so forth, what can the mind be aware of? <laughs> that is the implication. Whenever you think of anything, immediately you recognize it, then you go back to the five senses. You're actually watching the sixth sense. How the sixth sense is responding or reacting to the six senses. Not only the five senses, but to itself as well. For example, a comment arises. And then you judge yourself for that nasty comment. How can I be so nasty? That is really responding to the mental object. The trick is to compose your mind first. And then after that, you throw in the question, but don't answer it intellectually. Then go about watching the five or six senses. When the time is ripe, the answer will pop up. Not necessarily immediately, but later on. When the conditions are ripe. That's when the insight arises. That is the resultant. The first two are the causes. Everything is cause and effect. So you don't have to worry about the insights. You just need to do your homework. And then the insight will arise by itself when the time is right. The important thing is to maintain your composure and only to incline your mind to verify these three characteristics and causing conditioning only when it is composed. By composed, I mean either thought-free or thoughts are spaced far apart. Let me stop here. Any questions? it will occur many many times it will go in deeper and deeper even although the Sotapan also has seen the three characteristics he hasn't fully eradicated all his defilements and he will need to practice again and again when he understands them or has an insight into these deeper then he becomes the next stage after that as you see deeper to become the next stage and so forth until you become an arahant whereby a person has a very excessive bad habit not due to the present life and the person will not be able to know what are the conditions in the past so how do we deal with this it's a theoretical question it could I mean if your composure and mindfulness is strong enough one could also have a glimpse of a past life if not then you go and see a past life regression therapist Anyone else? Okay. You mentioned that you need to practice meditations, you need to have a teacher. In the monasteries, you have a teacher throughout. But for people like me, how do we practice? Like for me, I only practice during retreat. That's a practical question for me. And what do you mean by the term so or do more? <laughs> when does it happen? What are the causes and conditions for that? Well, you need a teacher to tell you what to do. And the teacher has really told you what to do and you just need to do it. <laughs> it is very simple. And then 
This happens especially with focus awareness. It's especially dangerous with focus awareness. When your mind reaches that state of samadhi, then if you have a propensity for such things, then you could go crazy. <laughs> Sometimes it could be due to spirit involvement. Some karmic creditors, they are waiting for the right conditions to take revenge. When you are meditating, there's a time somehow they can infiltrate into your consciousness, especially when you're at the limbo state between samadhi and sleep. There's a time when you see visions and things like that, and then you hear voices. People can tend to go crazy because of that. Also, sometimes there are psychiatric cases. They are not necessarily spirit-induced psychiatric cases in the sense that they have some physiological disorder with their glands producing more or less biochemicals than is needed by the body. And that can create hallucinations. Such people are also not recommended to meditate. Even if they want to meditate, it's best not to teach them samatha meditation, but to do just daily life mindfulness. That is very useful. Daily life mindfulness coming back to the present moment. Because they are creating hallucinations, they are living in a world of imagination rather than being in the present. Teaching them present moment awareness coming back to the senses, that is more beneficial to them than to teach them samatha practice, pure samatha practice. Focus awareness. In fact, National Health Service in the UK, they have this program called ACT, Acceptance Commitment Therapy, which is mindfulness-based therapy. And they have found that psychiatric cases, people who are suffering even from depression or schizophrenia, after they have taken their medication and they are introduced to this mindfulness of being in the present moment, they can actually reduce their medication and improve in their condition. Hope that answers the question. Can we also touch a little bit on the unexpected benefit of meditation? Let's say, for example, Devadatta, the cousin of Buddha. I don't think he's a Sotapanna or anything, but he has a lot of psychic power. So is that through both Samadhi and Vipassana? Just Samadhi. Just samadhi. Yes. I mean, assuming that he made use of samadhi and then he generate a lot of wealth and fame for himself, is this considered you gotten wealth and will he subsequently have to pay the price for it? Yes. You know that he paid the price for it because he wishes the Buddha harm. But if let's say somebody does have this power and then accumulate happiness for himself, is that also wrong? If it is done for selfish and unwholesome motives, this is wrong. There are also many yogis in India who are very highly attained, very high psychic powers. They can teleport things. They can teleport somebody's vehicle and to somebody else's house. <laughs> but that's not good. That's bad karma. You are stealing. <laughs> you are stealing. That's why it's called wrong samadhi. It's wrong samadhi. Wrong knowledge. That doesn't lead you to liberation. How can we tell us about chanda and meditation, health and meditation, study dhamma and meditation? What's the middle one? Health. Health. Health and meditation. The first one is chanda and meditation. Health and meditation, last one. Study Dhamma and meditation. Oh, study Dhamma and meditation. Chanda is, you need to have enough enthusiastic, passionate enthusiasm, which is desire, to want to walk the spiritual path. That's good. But once you're walking it, don't have expectations of timelines. You want to make a target within a specific point of time. You cannot do that. Because everything is subject to causes and conditions. You don't know what's going to happen. You just try your best and whatever happens, okay. That's number one. Number two, health and meditation. Yes, you must do yoga or qigong or do some sort of exercise in order to balance your body. 
There are many, many monks in Burma and Thailand who don't do this. They think that mind over matter. But you see, many of them suffer from various sorts of physical ailments. You need to actually do that. And I think if you do Qigong or Tai Chi or Yoga, these are all very complementary because you can be mindful while you are doing that. The last one is study the Dhamma and practice meditation. Actually, both are important. Because if you just rely on your personal experience and then you don't have a roadmap to check and see whether your experience is on the correct path or not, then you might go wrong and you might think that your experience is the real thing. On the other hand, if you just study without experience, then you tend to become too theoretical and too intellectual and you might even miss the point. And you also become very big-headed and then you argue with everybody. <laughs> you might even create a lot of bad karma for yourself by leading people the wrong way because you don't have enough personal experience in meditation. It's best to combine the two, study and practice and be balanced to see that whatever you are practicing, it tallies with the suttas. I think enough for today.